Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. The outside world could be a scary place, full of scary people. Most parents want to do everything in their power to protect their children from the dangers of society. What happens when it's not the outsiders you need to worry about? Maybe the people you should fear the most are actually right down the hall. This is a story of two boys who were willing to betray their entire family and their determination to outshine their idols. Broken Arrow City, located in northeast Oklahoma, was a rather large city with a population of over 98,000 people. It was deemed the 11th safest place in the United States. It's no surprise why the city was so popular. It's famous for its diversity, green vegetation, rolling hills, and lakes. As far as crime goes, the city has about one murder every couple years, which isn't much compared to most large cities. David and April Bever made the decision to move from Texas to Broken Arrow to raise their seven children. 18-year-old Robert, 16-year-old Michael, 13-year-old Crystal, 12-year-old Daniel, 7-year-old Christopher, 5-year-old Victoria, and 2-year-old Autumn. They lived in a large home in a suburban neighborhood. David worked for Samsung Resource in the IT department, while April homeschooled the children and ran a nonprofit organization. The organization she started was called Autumn's Hope, which was inspired by her youngest daughter, Autumn, who was born premature. Its goal was to raise money to help other people with children who were born premature or born ill. Even though the children were homeschooled, they never really associated with any other homeschooling groups in the area, and they weren't registered with the Cornerstone Homeschool Cooperative in Broken Arrow. The Bevers were known to most neighbors as quiet and seclusive, rarely making an effort to join the neighborhood get-togethers or play outside in the front yard. They would only see the kids playing in the backyard with each other. April and David also made a point to stay off social media. It seemed as if both parents were trying to protect their children from the outside world. That's pretty extreme. It almost seems like they're hiding something. Yeah, to not even let your children play with the other children in the neighborhood is a bit extreme. But we're talking about 2015 here. The kids had to be online, right? Well, even though both April and David didn't post anything to social media, they did allow their children to access the World Wide Web via tablets, computers, and gaming systems. There didn't seem to be any restrictions on what the kids could and couldn't do online, or maybe there were just too many kids to fully monitor it. The older boys, Michael and Robert, seemed to be into what most teenagers were into, like Star Wars, sports cars, bands, and Minecraft. They would even make vlogs talking about their video games and seem like typical goofy teenagers. With little to no socialization outside of their family, Robert and Michael grew to not only be brothers, but best friends. Michael looked up to his brother and wanted to share the same interests as him. So when Robert developed an interest in serial killers and mass shooters, the brothers bonded over the dream of one day committing a mass murder together. They idolized school shooters like Dylan and Eric from the infamous Columbine High School Massacre. They were also interested in the notorious killer Richard Ramirez and Ted Bundy. Both boys would spend hours researching murders and exchanging information. Their dream was to be famous and outkill their idols. Oh god. These boys sound seriously disturbed. I mean, we spend hours researching killers too, but we never stop being horrified by what we find. No, and we research killers for a purpose, and it's mainly to tell the victim's stories so our listeners are aware of the evil lurking out there. Never do we find what the killers are doing satisfying. 
Exactly. I'm sure they had plenty of inspiration in the media at that time. One of their favorite fictional films was Rampage that came out in 2009. It was about a 23-year-old man named Bill Williamson who lived with his parents and began to hate everything that had to do with society. His rampage starts with him bombing the police station. He then takes his anger out on random people with an AR-15 in the middle of a small town in Oregon. He went into a salon shop to take out everyone, cops that tried to detain him, local banks, and people walking in the streets. It's pretty much a movie full of senseless killing. At the end of the movie, Bill frames his only friend, 21-year-old Evan. He returns home before his parents arrive, and on the TV, they identify the mass shooter as Evan and confirm that he killed at least 93 people during his rampage. Bill then makes a homemade video while packing up his things, announcing his departure on a personal quest to further reduce the world's population and bring balance back to society. Whatever this man's mission was, his actions would bring harm and death to innocent people who did nothing to him. The worst part about the film is that he gets away with it, which would be nearly impossible in the real world. Oh, wow. I've never seen this. Don't. Michael (laughs) and Robert had a goal, and it wasn't just to be famous. They wanted the highest body count out of the killers they idolized. They talked about traveling across the United States and racking up over 100 murders. They wanted a Wikipedia page dedicated to them and maybe even a movie based on their crimes they committed one day. Robert had a job working for Micatech, which was a Christian call center. His job was to answer the phone for people calling in that needed prayer, and he would pray with them. With this money, he was able to start funding him and his brother's diabolical plan. Every check he received helped him buy body parts to put together a full set of body armor. They even started collecting knives, which his oldest sister Crystal was uncomfortable with, but David and April brushed it off as normal teenage boy behavior. Even after a bulletproof vest was discovered in the boys' room, they didn't really seem to think much of it. Knives I get not being concerned about because those can even be, like, decorative, but a bulletproof vest? Yeah, that's a big red flag. I feel like I'd be concerned either way. Having one pocket knife is like standard, but if you're going to start collecting knives, do so outside of my home where there's not multiple children around who have access to them. Good point. Good point. (laughs) They didn't have any guns, did they? After Robert's 18th birthday, he was able to purchase guns and ammunition, which is something that went widely unnoticed, mainly because he was ordering guns and having them shipped straight to the gun store where he would pick them up. One of the gun store employees even called Robert to let him know that his shotgun and two pistols were ready for pickup. He was planning on getting these on July 24th of 2015. Robert also had thousands of rounds of ammunition sent to his house. This is something the boys knew they wouldn't be able to get past their parents, so they made a plan to murder their entire family as the ammunition was being shipped to their home, then steal the family's GMC Yukon and head on their murderous rampage across the country. Robert was going to be the driver, and they were planning on heading to Washington State. Lucky us. The date they chose to annihilate their family was at midnight on July 22nd. The reason for this date was solely based on the timing of the ammunition being delivered to the family home. Robert kept a notebook under his bed, and he and Michael used it to write out their master plan and how everything was going to go down. Alongside that notebook was a stash of money Robert had been taking out of the bank to take with them on their expedition. The plan was to wait until the entire family was asleep the night before the delivery and kill each of them one by one. Michael was going to use his crossbow to shoot his father in the head to take him out first, then go room by room and kill each remaining family member with a knife. 
Wow, they had really thought this out. How was no one suspicious of what they were planning? I just don't get it. With so many young kids, it's easy to lose track of what the older ones are doing. I guess. Did they actually go through with this horrible plan? Well, on July 22nd of 2015, around 11 p.m., Michael and Robert were in the bedroom they shared and decided it was time to begin their killing spree. Michael went out to the living room and told 13-year-old Crystal he wanted to show her something on his computer. Crystal followed him into the room, and while she was standing by his desk, Robert attacked her and slit her throat from behind and began stabbing her neck and stomach. During the altercation, she was able to scream out, call the police, and get dad. At least that was Michael's story. But Crystal would later tell investigators that she went into the boys' room on her own to tell them that her mother wanted them to do the dishes, but upon entering the room, she noticed that they were putting on body armor and had knives laid out on the bed. Michael then turned to Robert and said, should we do it now? And Robert responded with, yes. Based on everything they watched, they expected her to die instantly from that wound, but she didn't, and she screamed. This got her mother's attention, and as soon as she had the chance to escape, she ran out of the room. In a panic, April began screaming at the family to call the police, which caused the boys to start stabbing her. In the midst of her mother being attacked, Crystal was able to make it out of the house and collapsed on the family driveway. April was dragged into the kitchen by Robert and repeatedly stabbed in the neck. Once Robert knew April was gone, he went out into the driveway to drag Crystal onto the front porch. He got Michael and told him to bring her into the house while he went to locate the rest of the kids. Seven-year-old Christopher was hiding in the bathroom of the house with his five-year-old sister, Victoria, when Michael walked up to the door pretending that he was trying to hide from Robert and he needed to come in. Christopher, being a little kid and likely trusting his brother, opened the door and Michael proceeded to stab both the children to death. The next victim on their list was 12-year-old Daniel, who was hiding in their father's office right next door to the bathroom where his brother and sister were just murdered. That's so messed up. Christopher and Victoria were so young. They thought they were helping to save their brother. They probably didn't even understand what was actually going on. I know, and it's honestly so sad to even imagine. He tricked them into their death. Daniel was a little older than Christopher and Victoria. Did it make a difference? Daniel had somehow managed to get a hold of Michael's cell phone during the chaos and called the police at approximately 11.32 p.m. During the call, Daniel was able to say the following, Help, my brother's attacking my family, and gave his address. The call becomes very hard to understand, but in the background, you can faintly hear Daniel say, No, Michael, please. No, Michael, please stop. Michael then picks up the phone to a 911 operator asking, Hi, what's going on there? And Michael responds with, phone broke, before hanging up. Turns out that Michael had used the same tactic on Daniel as he did with Christopher, but as soon as he got into the room, he broke the phone and then told Robert, and I quote, he's all yours, end quote. Just like his siblings, Daniel was stabbed multiple times and was able to run away, but he collapsed in the living room and died shortly after. Now they just needed to locate their father, David, and two-year-old Autumn. David had been sleeping upstairs, but he woke up towards the end of the attack. When he saw what had transpired, David tried to charge at his son, Robert. Robert managed to stab his father directly in the chest, and David collapsed on the floor, where Robert continued to stab him to death. The only victim who hadn't been harmed was two-year-old Autumn, who was sleeping upstairs. Other than her, Michael and Robert were sure everyone was dead. 
They then heard a knock at the door, which they thought was a neighbor, so they quickly grabbed a backpack and fled out the back door of the house. Thank the gods the baby was okay. Still, what a cold-hearted thing to do to your family, the people who loved them the most in the world. Yeah, and let me tell you, when I first listened to that 911 call Daniel made, I thought he was one of the surviving family members. I had to, like, take a moment afterwards because I found out those were his last words alive. This whole story is so heartbreaking. All the cases with little kids are so hard. And yet, we keep writing them. Steph will tell us what the police found when we come back from a short break. The job was done, and now all they had to do was find a way to get out of town. So they ran in the direction of some trees where they knew there was a creek nearby. That knock at the door turned out to be the police, and upon knocking, they could hear Crystal, who was laying in the entryway, faintly saying, help me. The lead detective on the scene decided it was enough to break down the door, and when they entered the home, they immediately noticed Crystal in the entryway lying in a pool of blood and took her out to the paramedics. Once in the vehicle, they were shocked to see that she was still alive. Luckily, they managed to get her stabilized and sent her off to the closest hospital to be rushed into surgery. The scene the police discovered looked like something out of a horror movie. Blood was splattered everywhere, and it was clear someone was dead. The next victims they found were Daniel and April. They took them out to the paramedics, who pronounced them dead at the scene. They then came across David, lying on the floor of the hallway once they turned the corner. He was also clearly dead. They continued to the back of the house, where they noticed a locked bathroom door. Not knowing if the suspect was possibly hiding in there or not, they kicked in the door. That is where they found Christopher and Victoria lying in a pool of blood, also clearly deceased. After the discovery of the last two children, they made their way upstairs and started clearing each room one by one. That's when they came across baby Autumn sleeping in her crib unharmed. It turned out she had slept through the entire massacre, and Michael and Robert forgot about her or didn't have time to get to her. After sweeping the entire house, one officer noticed the back door was ajar and figured this is where the suspects made their escape. I mean, I'm not surprised the baby slept through all that, depending on how far her room was from the attack. Can you imagine if she started crying? It would have immediately alerted Michael and Robert to her. Right? It was so lucky she didn't cry. Crystal was incredibly lucky, too. Very. And they couldn't have gotten far in that time span. Police used canines to hunt the scent down and quickly found the boys near the creek hiding in some brush. The police told them to put their hands up in the air and surrender, to which Robert complied and Michael hesitated. With the help of the police dog, they were able to drag Michael out of the brush and arrest him too. Once arrested, photos were taken of them as evidence. Robert was covered in blood, still wearing his body armor and had a smirk on his face as if he had no regrets. Michael, on the other hand, removed his armor as they fled, and it was found between the house and the river. Michael had a vacant look on his face, as if he didn't care at all. As they were being escorted to the back of the police vehicles, Robert turned to his brother and said, and I quote, It's been a pleasure. I'm proud of what we've done. End quote. Crystal suffered from a slit throat, multiple stab wounds, and excessive blood loss. However, through all that trauma to her body, Crystal was able to survive the surgery and eventually recovered. The rest of her family wasn't as lucky. The sadistic damage to each family member included the following. 
David had 28 stab wounds to his back, neck, chest, and abdomen. April had 48 stab wounds to her neck, face, chest, and abdomen. In the living room, Daniel had 21 stab wounds to his back, neck, head, and chest. In the bathroom, Christopher had 21 stab wounds to his back, neck, and chest. And finally, little Victoria had 21 stab wounds to her back, neck, chest, face, and abdomen. If they had just wanted to kill their family members, they wouldn't have gone as far as to stab all of them over 20 times. They had no mercy on any of them. I'm convinced they're psychopaths. Clearly. So did the guys confess to their sick premeditated plan? At the police station, Robert and Michael talked openly and confidently about the events of that night. Michael's confession was the only one available to the public and frankly the only reason we were able to write this episode. For unknown reasons, Robert's confession was sealed. Michael took the approach of completely blaming Robert and taking little to no responsibility for any of the stabbings. In Michael's confession, he wrote, and I quote, The plan was to first, at around 12 a.m., put on our gear and Robert would kill April Bever and then I would kill Crystal and Victoria, then go upstairs and both kill David Bever and the baby by cutting off her head. Then go downstairs and Robert would kill Daniel and Chris. Then wait a couple of days and leave the state and begin the spree. End quote. He told the detectives that when they put their plan into action, it was Robert that went around stabbing each family member and he just simply stood in the background. All he did was disable the family alarm and drag Crystal back into the house. He eventually admitted to stabbing his little brother Christopher one time. He insisted he only participated in the murders because Robert threatened to kill him if he backed out of the plan. After hours of interrogation, Michael eventually admitted that he stabbed Christopher multiple times. What we know about Robert's confession didn't line up with Michael's. He was proud of what he did and wanted credit for it. Because of this, investigators knew that Robert wouldn't just give Michael credit for the murders if he didn't do any of them. Yeah, Michael tried to get one over on the investigators and failed. You killing one brother and tricking your siblings into their final moments is enough to assume that you and Robert were on the same page. I'm not even convinced he only participated in Christopher's murder. I think he probably participated in more than he's willing to admit. Oh, for sure. So, Crystal survived, thankfully, but what were their charges? Both were charged with five counts of first-degree murder and one count of assault and battery with a deadly weapon. Robert was charged as an adult since he was 18 years old, and though Michael's lawyer tried to get him charged as a juvenile, he was also charged as an adult. This was due to Oklahoma state law that said if you're 15 to 17 years old, you are to be charged as an adult if you commit a crime as serious as first-degree murder. In Oklahoma, since Robert was 18 at the time of the murders, he was eligible for the death penalty. In order to avoid a trial, the state's attorney offered to take that off the table if Robert pled guilty on all charges. Both brothers were held in the jail medical unit separated until their trial. On June 17, 2016, Robert tried to commit suicide by hanging himself with a sheet by tying it around his bed and neck. This attempt was unsuccessful. Robert ended up taking the deal he was offered and was given five life sentences to serve consecutively without the possibility of parole, plus another life term. Good. He doesn't get to take the easy way out. He needs to sit with what he's done. 
I think it's a fair law that even teenagers can be charged as adults for something as horrible as first-degree murder. I mean, it's like multiple murders at that. Right. (laughs) What about Michael? Did he take a deal? No. Michael, on the other hand, pleaded not guilty and took his case to trial. His story in the courtroom was completely different from what he told investigators the night he was arrested. He claimed that when Crystal came into their room, Robert stabbed her and Michael was shocked and asked his brother, what are you doing? (laughs) He admitted to convincing his younger siblings to open the locked doors, but Robert was the one that actually murdered them. Crystal testified in court along with Robert and both admitted to physical abuse in their home perpetrated by their father, David. Apparently, Michael had a speech impediment causing him to stutter and his father would yell at him all the time. They said David would kick and punch Michael frequently and throw all of the children across the room. Robert said that his parents were overbearing and paranoid, with cameras placed all around the house. They refused to allow the kids to have any kind of relationship with people outside of the home. I mean, David doesn't sound like the best father and possibly abusive if all of this is true. But if that's the case, their anger should have been directed towards him and not the entire family. I agree. It does explain some things, but it's still no excuse for what they did. They're both guilty in my eyes, regardless of the circumstances. And it sounds like they were trying to justify the annihilation of their entire family on their dislike for their father. Well, on May 10th, 2018, Michael was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder and one count of assault and battery with a deadly weapon. His sentencing was scheduled for July 24th, 2018, during which Michael made a statement that persuaded the judge to push his sentence out until August 9th. The statement said, Every minute and every second, I've been thinking about what I could have done different and what kind of life I could have had with my family. On August 9th, the judge sentenced Michael to five life sentences with the possibility of parole, plus a 28-year sentence for the attempted murder of Crystal. With this sentencing, Michael would also likely spend the rest of his life in prison. I don't feel bad for him, to be honest. But how are Crystal and Autumn now? Is anyone living at that house? Yeah, so as far as the surviving members, Crystal and Autumn, due to their age, their whereabouts are sealed. Wherever they are, they are sure to be in a safer place than in the home of their two sadistic brothers and an allegedly abusive father. The Bevers also actually had a family dog, a dachshund chihuahua mix that was found the day after the murders and adopted by the Bevers' neighbor, Julie Wallace, who renamed the dog Sally. To this day, every time Sally hears screams on the TV, she gets frightened and taken back to that horrendous night. As far as the house, it was put up for sale and sat on the market for years. No one was willing to purchase it, though, due to the murders that took place there. The neighbors felt that the house would attract the wrong crowd, such as tourists and maybe even true crime fanatics like ourselves. The house was a real blemish for the community. On March 18, 2017, the house was destroyed in a fire that was ruled to have been caused intentionally, but no leads ever surfaced as to who did it. With the extended family of the Bevers' blessing, the city ended up purchasing the property and placing a park there called Reflection Park that would bring healing to the community. On July 15, 2019, Robert attempted to attack prison staff in the day room at Joseph Harp Correctional Center with an 8-inch sharpened instrument. They were able to put him in a bear hug and get him to drop the weapon. 
After four years, Robert is still determined to continue his killing spree no matter the consequences. It takes a special kind of evil to have what it takes to annihilate your entire family based solely off your obsession with serial killers. No matter how Michael and Robert felt towards their father, no one in that home deserved to randomly die or be brutally taken away from this world. If little Daniel didn't make that 911 call before he met his end, Crystal wouldn't be alive today to share her side of the story. Autumn wouldn't have even made it to her third birthday. The events of that night couldn't have been predicted, and that's the most terrifying thing of all about this story, because both Michael and Robert made sure that no one would have seen it coming. The National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma, and Mental Health provides training, support, and consultation to advocates, mental health and substance abuse providers, legal professionals, and policymakers as they work to improve agency and system-level responses to survivors and their children. Their work is survivor-defined and rooted in principles of social justice. If you're a victim of domestic violence or know someone who is, go to www.nationalcenterdvtraumamh.org or call 312-726-7020 for more information. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what's our conjure tip of the week? Today I want to talk about spirit quartz, also known as cactus quartz, one of the most beautiful crystals for peace. It helps resolve arguments, especially in the home environment, and restores harmony in the household. Known for enhancing togetherness and a sense of belonging, spirit quartz protects the aura from negative people in comments. That's a great one. It's also very cool looking, so it's very easy to have it displayed in your home as decoration, also while it serves a spiritual purpose. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, Conjurers. Conjurers.